Coming up on episode 74 of the Upful Life Podcast. I mean, at its core, you know, pop music, rock music is mostly folk art, you know, refined to such a degree that it becomes irresistible to the broadest possible group. <clears throat> you know, I like hit songs, you know. I never, I never thought it was a great idea to try to have to not have a hit. That seems dumb to me. I mean, I, I do know that we we could translate to a lot of audiences. Listen, Shannon was irresistible, and even people who like, I, I, I don't know, all this genre stuff is sort of silly to me. You know, I can't because I kind of like if if you're a great example of what somebody calls a particular genre, I'm kind of interested in it. You know what I mean? And so, like, I, I was kind of surprised and didn't really understand because I didn't come along with stuff like this but like you could be uncool because you liked a particular kind of music you know what i mean like that concept was so foreign to me that i was like what are you kidding of course i like round and round by rat that's a fucking great song you know you'd be at a party and some rock star would show up or something you know we're kind of starting to get into some group of people i guess and we didn't know really but um I, I heard about him before I met him, and he'd only been there for like a week. Like everybody knew Shannon was because you know he came there, staying with Axel, go out with Axel, you know, get in a fight, punch somebody twice his size, and like you know get thrown in jail. Like he was just like he was insane. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 74, coming to you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. Episode 74, kicking off 2024, this one's a doozy. So grateful. You are tuning in. Yeah, it's like fuck the dumb shit. My daily life take me to the summit like a thumbprint. Begin to hunt for mics and beats when the sun sets. In the tribe I roam with, everybody's packing the fast stack of the song for when the wax is on. Ain't nobody just tagging along. Way past rookie status, my madness has been refined Already put in time, focusing on rhyme, not making a dime Now I'm shaking the minds of listeners Making them trip on their jaws and shitting their drawers Hitting the balls, ripping and getting applause <laughs> My style is kind of different because of this birthplace I spent my first days rhyming Yes, indeedy Episode 74 of the Up for Life podcast Is proudly brought to you once again by I Am AVL Independent Arts and Music of Asheville 
preserving and promoting the creative community in Asheville, North Carolina since 2012, gradually watching Asheville evolve into one of the hottest music scenes in the country. IMAVL does all they can to support those making noise in their city and then archive the history in the making. IMAVL has live stream installations in several area venues, streaming shows up to six nights a week, sometimes several shows on any given night, making Asheville the first city in the world with its music scene aggregated into one channel. Over 3,500 concerts in the archives, national, local, international, there's a ton to explore. Last summer, they streamed seven stages, four days straight, for the inaugural multi-venue AVL Fest. Based out of the world-class Echo Mountain Recording Studios, they produce an original series called Echo Sessions. Six seasons deep on PBS with artists from Billy Strings to Marcus King, The Motet, Eric Krasno, Leftover Salmon, La Special, The Nth Power, many others. The streams are free to watch, and it's a free service for the artists, bands, and performers at the venue that they are installed in. IMAVL is a nonprofit, so fans can donate to their dogged efforts to support the arts by heading to the IMAVL.com website or scanning a QR code at any recent show archive. IMAVL, passionate about their city and the amazing musical community they've built in the little valley in the mountains. IMAVL does what they can and what they do to support their friends and family and share the magic of Asheville, North Carolina with the world. IMAVL.com. Do not stay home without it. Psychedelic mind state Dropout Travelers Freestyle Babylon Real Seeker Mystery Unravel I wasn't raised by the streets I was raised by the highway My tribe migrate Through tall trees Small towns And skyscrapers Psychedelic mind state Dropout Travelers Freestyle Babylon Real Seeker Mystery Unravel Look up in the sky I want to let my people know about the good things happening at Cold-Blooded Designs Find them at coldblooddesigns.com. Shout out to my man Ian Neville of the first family of New Orleans, the Nevilles, the Neville brothers, the Meters, Dumpster Funk. My man Ian put together this merch line and art for the wall. It's hella dope. I'm a big fan of the Funk Molecule logo, which he's got on t-shirts and hats. But he's also got a whole gallery of like fine art, modern sort of like art deco meets hip hop meets psychedelic meets hood shit meets funk meets abstract inexplicable dopeness. So shout out to my man Ian Neville. I want to support all things Neville, all things NOLA. Um, So coldblooddesigns.com is where you find it. Support the creatives in our communities.
Yes, indeedy. We're back, episode 74. Want to say thank you and a deep bow of gratitude to everybody who checked out Up For Life 2023, Favorite Records and More, my seventh annual feature. It's on upfullife.com. Uh, 23 records reviewed, another 23 albums recommended. About 30 of my favorite songs, singles, B-sides, etc. 23 DJ sets, mixtapes, and about a dozen official live releases. All of it on uh, Spotify playlist and the DJ stuff on SoundCloud playlist. Appreciate everybody who uh, shared that on social and who supported it by donating to the cause you can donate to all things up for life that project this podcast in general just slide through upfullife.com if you're so inclined to send me a couple of dollars for making you holla i appreciate that also appreciate everybody who smashes that subscribe button and if you're able to you have the time and are so inclined please rate and review the up for life podcast on Apple Podcasts, preferably, or just your podcast platform of choice, goes a long way to sending those algorithms in this direction, exposing this show to new ears, new souls, new listeners, new friends, and that is awesome, and we are grateful, also grateful who everyone, to everyone who sends me a message. You can email the show, holla at your boy, b.gets at upfullife.com. I love to hear from the people. So shoot me a message with any reflections or suggestions or constructive criticisms or connections. Let's make it happen. And with that, you're hearing uh, the classic Mob Deep track Shook Ones. Shook Ones Part 2, I should be specific. OMA out of the UK off their brand new album, Bread and Butter. Snowflakes rolling over my ear Goose-bumping liver If I'm hungry, I'd throw 30 in the morning Pink Dot will deliver And I'm all so tired Of you pushing that thorny crown some cryptic, chilling, haunting irony to kick off one of the most personal and important 
podcast I'll ever put out. Dearly beloveds, it is an honor and privilege and pleasure and absolute dream to welcome the great Rogers Stevens, co-founder and guitarist of Blind Melon, and also one half of Town and Stevens. Uh, I'm going to come out the gates and let y'all know this is going to be a bit of a lengthy intro segment. And if you're so inclined, you want to get right to the conversation, I totally get that. Check the show notes. There are timestamps for what starts when. But I'm going to talk a little bit about why this is such a huge deal for me. I'm also going to tell you just a little bit about Rogers and Blind Melon. And also uh, a bit about why I handled the interview in the fashion in which I do. Let's start with who is Rogers Stevens. He is, like I said, guitarist, co-founder of Blind Melon from Mississippi. And he um, recently released an album with uh, the current bass player, Blind Melon, Nathan Town. Uh, it's a duo album uh, with contributions from their friend Rennie and maybe one or two others. Uh, and i obviously a huge fan of all the Melon Cats and much of their post-Melon endeavors. So I've been following along with Rogers on social. I enjoyed the Town and Stevens record and uh, actually put it in my faves of the year in the recommended section on upfullife.com. Check that out. Self-titled, full-length, Town and Stevens. And I just kind of innocuously commented on one of his posts, hey, I'd love to talk to you about your, your career, past, present, future. And to my delight and surprise, he jumped at the opportunity and we set something up relatively quick. Now, uh, Blind Melon, as many of you know who follow my writing or presence on social or certainly know me in real life, Blind Melon's one of my all-time favorite bands. And uh, I don't say that lightly. I mean, I'm sure I've got lots of favorites, but Blind Melon exists in a rarefied air. And when I talk about Blind Melon, I'm not slighting the uh, revival of Melon uh, after their singer Shannon Hoon's passing in 1995. They came back with a record in 2008 called Four My Friends and some singles subsequent to that uh, with Travis T. Warren singing. But my uh, laser focus and uh, lifetime passion is pretty much in encapsulates their two and a half albums. Self-titled debut in 92, uh, the magnificent, celestial, truly epic soup Recorded in Kingsway Studios in New Orleans in 1995, and then the uh, posthumous release of outtakes and, and demos called Nico, which came out a year and a half after Shannon's passing in October of 95. So, uh, I've written one article about Blind Melon uh, relative to the All I Can Say documentary that came out in 2019, made by Danny Clinch and some collaborators. Danny is a world-renowned rock photographer who has worked with, shot, and jammed on harmonica with everyone from Springsteen to Pearl Jam to Fish. And of course, he was like the Blind Melon, uh, you know, band photographer, if you will. And also played some harmonica on some tunes and was really close to the fellas and uh, with uh, some collaborators stitched together 
Shannon's high eight video camera footage. Shannon, the singer of the band who passed away in 95, he was the first, you know, relentless filmer long before smartphones. He uh, was just always filming everything. So he had a voluminous collection of video cassettes that many years, many tears, uh, painstakingly woven together as a uh, narrative. And that's the All I Can Say documentary in 2019. Two decades before that uh, was Letters from a Porcupine, which includes some hiate footage, but also just like odds and ends from news clips and live performances, and it came out in the wake of Shannon's passing. So there are two documentary films uh, already uh, in circulation about this band and their rise, fall, demise, resurgence, etc. Um, there's also two books, both written by the same gentleman, a fellow named Greg Prado, who I bow to, incredible work. The first one came out uh, 15 years ago or so, called A Devil on One Shoulder, An Angel on Another, and it's more of like a wider, full band uh, biography. And then uh, just a couple years ago, the uh, eponymously titled Shannon, also by Greg Prado, which is like um, told in the quotes of all the people in his life, including his own, and emotional exercise reading this but incredible um work greg prado so two films two books about a band that had in essence three albums with this classic lineup and that's how powerful their story their music their impact were when i talk about their impact i say that because i was somebody who was scribbling these lyrics in my notebooks in high school and uh listening to the First, the cassette tape, and then the CDs, uh, really, for the rest of my life. And this music has been a sacred uh, thing for me and thousands of other metalheads, melonheads all over the world, and certainly in the U.S. Um, I often say that, you know, other than Garcia's passing i would say as much if not more devastating to a 17 year old me in october of 95 just two months after garcia was shannon's passing as we had plans and fake ids to go see them at the trocadero on halloween of 95 but he died on october 21st um after a ride i think the show was in houston the night before and they were playing tipatinas the next night and uh the bus arrived in New Orleans in the morning of that fateful day and Shannon uh, passed away and right there on the bunk on the bus in New Orleans. So I often think of him when I'm at Tipitina's. I often think of him when I'm like in the area of Kingsway Studios and just in New Orleans in general because Soup is such a New Orleans album. It's got the Little Rascals, uh, Kermit Ruffins and just a whole lot of, of that New Orleans voodoo. And little did I know that it would become my home away from home and I'd be so sucked into all things NOLA. And I reckon even before the meters or anything that got me there, it was like Soup, one of my hands-down all-time favorite albums ever. It was maligned when it came out and really depressed Shannon and the band after they had this huge whirlwind hit and with no rain and three years of touring and multi-platinum sales and rocket ship to stardom and then 
kind of a thud with uh, soup from a commercial standpoint. Yet, all these years later, it's so revered and celebrated and adored uh, as such a mark of high art and great unicorn work from a band that people kind of wrote off as a one-hit wonder. Um, yeah, I've been going for a while, right? Uh, I should probably tell you a little bit about Blind Melon. I was going to read uh, their bio, but basically I'll give you the basics. They began in L.A., founded in 1990 by a group of Southern transplants, Roger Stevens, who you're going to hear from, Brad Smith, and Glenn Graham. That's guitar, bass, and drums, respectively. They all headed west from Mississippi, soon meeting Christopher Thorne, who hailed from Pennsylvania. The original iconic vocalist Shannon Hoon arrived shortly thereafter from Lafayette, Indiana. And the band had gained some early buzz after Shannon sang on the Guns N' Roses single, Don't Cry, because uh, Shannon was friends with Axel from Lafayette, Indiana. So they quickly got a Capitol Records recording contract, and nearly overnight they just became... Uh, well, maybe not overnight. It took about a year after the album came out for No Rain to hit, but, you know, they had Woodstock 94, you know, with everyone from Neil Young to Soundgarden, you know, open for the Rolling Stones at stadiums. Uh, they're just like uh, hit the ground running. And uh, Shannon always struggled with drugs and alcohol, like so many of us. Um, he was a uh, mercurial, uh, irresistible, and, and like just whimsical unicorn human and I in some ways lived vicariously through him as a teenager just through his music through his antics through his unabashed expressions of self of wonder living in wonder and then recording and not just recording it with music but recording his day-to-day -day life which we're so grateful to have after the fact and you know the rest of the band has been kind of uh you know they've had to tell this story and live with this shadow of what was and what could have been and what wasn't so i bring that up to say this is how i handled this conversation rogers has done numerous interviews with other band members and himself they've talked to the authors the films were, were involved in, in the filmmaking in, in certain aspects um, so they've just been telling this story of their rise and fall and shannon's cocaine overdose and death and the aftermath for so long that i did not want to just uh, tread similar topography with Rogers that you know unless he took us there organically like I know the story and I didn't intend to do like a blind melon primer I just wanted to have a conversation with the great Roger Stevens and of course I'm ready to talk any and everything melon but I wanted to talk about his current band I wanted to just talk about his journey as a guitar player as a musician as a dude from Mississippi who moved to the west coast and now ironically lives with his family just outside Philadelphia, not far from my mom, close to where I grew up, where I, Philly's where I spent the majority of my 20s and uh, early 30s. So like, there's a symbiosis at play there, and uh, I don't know Rogers going into this. So I've had the privilege of having relationships with many of my podcast guests, even like, you know, world-renowned musicians like a Carl Denson or Adam Deitch. I have a personal relationship with them going on decades. This was just, starting fresh with rogers and he's a southern boy and as he explains he he moves at a slow deliberate pace through life and if you try to speed him up he's liable to you know 
behave uh, oddly. So all that to say, I came in with kid gloves. I said I'm not to myself self. I'm not going to just have to retell the Blind Melon story that all the hardcore fans know. I'm going to just have a conversation. And that's what we did. Now, a shining example of this would be like I didn't ask about Brad Smith, who's no longer in the band, for reasons of uh, if they wanted us to know what had happened there, every band member's had uh, ample opportunity to speak on it publicly, including Brad. Um, This is a brotherhood, a sacred union that as he describes with different relationships over time, things can go awry, but it's always still brotherhood. So I'm not a gotcha journalist. I'm not here to start shit. I mean, he walked us right up to some Brad stuff when he was talking about him in New Orleans, when he was talking about his building his house in Los Angeles. He could have taken any opportunity to discuss why Brad doesn't uh, participate anymore. And maybe Brad would come on this pod and talk to me sometime, but I wasn't about to go there with that unless... Uh, Rogers went there on his own. Same with the actual like night that Shannon died and the morning of finding out and and a lot of the grief stuff because uh, I have too much respect for them for that to do that. Like if they want to get into it, I'm ready. I know the stories. I mean, and, and they have talked about it on a podcast or book here and there, you know. And, and Rogers was up hanging out with Shannon the night, you know bus ride from Houston to New Orleans and Christopher too. So like those guys want to revisit that on their own terms. Cool. But I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to push the issue. And and that was just how I rolled. I let Rogers kind of drive even though I was the host. But we had a great interaction. Everything from glam rock to the hippie shit to some real cutty song stuff and and some of the bricks that they laid both through their connections, through their life experiences, uh, working in New Orleans, living in New Orleans, the rear view mirror. I mean, it's a magical, rewarding conversation for me. Um, I've never edited a podcast with such intention nor meticulousness, and that's not to say I'd give anything less than 100% on every episode, but this is my love letter to to Shannon, Rogers, Christopher, Glenn, Brad, and also the legions and legions of Melon fans uh, around the country and around the world. Um, Nobody more so than my homies. I have so many friends where my relationship with them, Blind Melon, is like a a connector, is like a a lifetime bond, Um, starting with the hometown homies, right? Like summer 93, hanging with Steve Malik on the beaches of Margate, New Jersey, with like a CD boombox and like, you know, metal bowls of swag, just getting familiar with, you know, you're hearing the song Drive come on. Ooh, what a cut, right? So we listened to that whole album that night and that summer, and we were off. And then I saw, in September, I saw Blind Melon play opening for Lenny Kravitz at the Tower Theater. Historic night in a young lion's life right there. And all the hometown homies who love Melon, uh, we still talk about them. We still send each other, you know, lyrical texts or photos we haven't seen before. Um, Robbie WK, my man Joe Demedio, Dr. Shouse, Matt Shapiro, Lifetime Melon fam. Then when I went to college in 96, I joined a band called Goodfoot. 
that was named that not for the James Brown song, but for the uh, Goodfoot Workshop, which was like the original demo sessions that Blind Melon had in 1990. And that band name and that energy was thanks to a fellow named Keith Stapleton. We called him the Staple Gun. He's a rhythm guitarist and singer of our band. He brought a lot of melon energy to his performance, to his songwriting, and we connected. I played in that band, and uh, our friendship survives to this day. So shout out Staple Gun. Also shout out Chip Lewis from UVM. He was also uh, in Vermont at the same time as us. Huge Goodfoot fan, huge Shannon fan. We stayed up many nights smoking grass, listening to the band, talking about life. Um, and I can say that, you know, even to this day. Um, Ryan Shapiro in New Orleans, knew Shannon personally, spent time with him in New Orleans back at the end of his life and waves the flag as far and wide and high for Blind Melon as anyone. Um, so shout out to Ryan. It's a, it's a joy to be able to like geek out with him to this day because he's like, he's probably even more passionate about it than I am. And, and this is like my shit. And uh, I'd also got to shout out uh, somebody who's like a newer friend, but he's a deep, deep homie already. And that's David Brannon down there in Asheville, North Carolina, who listens to the pod. He's a big supporter of the Upful Life. He's also a homie. He's marrying my wife's best friend. Uh, he, while I was scribbling these lyrics into a notebook in high school, David, who's a few years older than me, was actually chasing Melon around to dive bars and small clubs in the Southeast as like a you know college age dude and uh he's among the hardest core of melon fans i know and, and actually after we met and he started dating anna uh we bonded deep over like the depth of our unwavering passion for melon and like that's what i'm saying so that's what this pod is okay it, it is a, a love letter to all those people and all this music and and Rogers is probably cringing right now because he's a metal guy, right? And he tells you. But uh, we're, we're some hippies around here. And uh, this, is, this is some peace and love shit and some reverence for the great Shannon Hoon. And sending up, celebrating, loving the mighty blind melon. Uh, so with that, let's hear from Rogers. Episode 74 of the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, king of the long intros. Thank you for listening. Love you. Yes, indeedy. start there. I'll welcome you to the Upful Life podcast. My name's Brian. Everyone calls me B. B. Getz. That's my first initial last name. So thank you for uh, making time and uh, and joining us, Roger Stevens. Thanks for having me. So tell me about Philly. Like, how does Roger Stevens at this juncture in your life and career end up in Philly? And, and tell me about a little your life there now, maybe even outside of music. Um, well, I mean, you know, I ended up here. I was living in New York, and 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 with with two young children <laughs> at the time in Manhattan. You know, it just it was, it was a it was a good idea. You know, we, we had a, a, a great family connection down here, so we came down here. 
and um and so you, you know i i we're out kind of in in the burbs you know it's it's probably about 20 minutes into center city um but it's real it's a you know so neighborhoods and you know nice neighborhood and um it's been great for for them but i spend most of my time in here you know yeah i can see why it looks like yeah. a. I, I you know i've never had a studio before but i got you know i had you know living in new york you just don't have a lot of space you know or if you do you're kind of renting space and and i didn't have any good gear up there really either but i moved down here and and, and you know we got in here and i started building this stuff about you know during the pandemic really like about really about three or four years ago i know what all the stuff is and what it's supposed to do but i never did it myself so i had to figure that part out so you know i've just been like and that's what i did i mean it's, these are the recordings that i just made is really the first that's the first time i ever mic'd a drum kit by myself so you know kind of got lucky well, it sounds great. We've been playing the hell out of the new record around the house. And cool. let's, yeah, let's start there. So, so you made that, a lot of that stuff in that room, in that home studio. Were you doing yeah. like uh, digital files back and forth with Nathan? Nope. All nope. in that room. Yeah. Yeah. Take, take me to, uh, through the, you know, the whole journey of bringing this project to life. Well, I, you know, Nate and I had some songs coming together. Like I flew there to, he's up in Michigan, rural Michigan, up on the thumb. You know, right on the lake. And he has a place up there, beautiful out in the country. And so, um, but I've been going there and kind of writing with him. At first, I was writing with him because I thought, okay, these are good. We're going to make a, you know, we're thinking about making a Blind Melon record, you know. And we started releasing some of the stuff, you know, like, um, you know, in like 2019 into 2020. But, um, you know, the pandemic, you know, being what it was, sort of threw everybody for a loop. I, I never sang before, you know, I've never, uh, you know, recorded my voice, you know, seriously. Other, the only thing I ever did was in church, you know, when growing up and, you know, in the South, which is just what you do. I had a lot, I had songs, you know, I've always had songs and, but I never like really sang them, you know, I mean, I could, I could see that being done, but I didn't, uh, I would I would mostly like put you know music in sort of the into the pot with Blind Melon because I don't I, I like the singer to you know have the discretion to to write their work you know their own words I mean I, I wrote words for a couple of songs in the first Blind Melon record but that was it really but anyway I started uh, uh, just finishing them you know I, I I'd never learned other people's songs so I sat down on my porch which is right under this room you know, throughout the pandemic for three or four hours a day and just like sang at the top of my lungs. I, I just, I learned every song I could think of on the radio. Like I just look at the cowboy chords and then, you know, uh, and, and the words. And then I would just play them. So I learned hundreds of songs like that. And I, you know, just teaching myself to sing. Everything I could think of from like the radio in the 1970s. You know, just the stuff I remember. Like big hits and like, you know, all the Beatles songs and a bunch, you know, that kind of thing. I think this, you know, what a lot of people do to learn how to sing, maybe. You know, we, Nate and I having written some songs, he had already recorded songs with his vocals. Like he was doing that. And, you know, uh, we ended up doing a couple of those on this record or 
yeah, we did a part of the band was like Nate had that sort of worked out with a vocal. of aging but i you know added sort of a middle section to it but you know this he had written all that songs so uh and and the long one at the very end of the record which is about eight minutes long you know it's you know steroid it's like free bird even maybe you know <laughs> but that that song is uh we wrote that's the very first thing we wrote together that that whole piece of music and there's another one that's long like that that we're also going to record finish recording too yeah the weird jam funny you bring that song up because that is the you can leave it to me yeah i had to double check my notes yeah. yeah so that is that's the one that it was the first one i wrote down really jammy yeah kind of a journey at the end and you know my connection to to your music with blind melon was always the sort of crossover to the sort of jamminess and you mentioned that 70s you know fm radio or i guess back then it was maybe am radio uh i hear a lot of that in in town and steven like that seven that fat Basy analog. I don't know with... what else to do. <laughs> be to be honest, like like I mean, like to me, it sounds like this is currently what I sound like. You know what I mean? It's not, but it doesn't sound current to anybody else. I don't know how to do a lot of the stuff. Like I know how to make records in basically one way, which is, you know, you get performances, right? And so that's what happens. Like, and, and that song, exactly how it was done. Because, you know, I mean, this is the room that we're in. I'll show you. Like, so, like, there's a grand piano, right? And uh, that piano was re recorded on, on there. And then here are the drums, and that's where the drums were recorded. So basically i my friend rennie came in here and uh we kind of like you know told him what the song you know sort of sorted it out and then i put a click track down and nate played that piano from top to bottom right there beautifully i have a recording of it and then <laughs> uh nate and Rennie, I put Nate on the bass sitting in this chair and Rennie on the drums and they cut that thing live against that, that whole jam at the end. Like what Rennie did is like one, and Nate, I mean, it's really one of the best moments I've ever had in the studio. And I, I was so lucky. I mean, you can't, if you're in this room, it's like, it's not, it's not ideal for recording here. You know what I mean? 
anyway, it, it just it, it just worked. I got lucky. So now I'm like in here figuring it out like, oh, my God, could I ever do that again? I don't know. I'm scared to cut drums in here. I imagine that was probably, you know, somebody's bedroom before it was your studio. I don't know. I mean, we, we moved into this house in like 2017. The guy who uh, lived here before me went to Juilliard and he mm. had this grand piano in here and he gave it to me. Wow. And uh, because he was moving to another, he was moving to an apartment in Center City and he was getting like a Steinway, like a, a new Steinway A, like a big full grant. This is an old player's piano that has been, uh, the, the guts of it have been removed, basically, the player part of it. And uh, so it's like just a regular piano now, but it's still got the mechanics underneath it. But I just stuck a mic in it and it's all over this record. We used this one and um, we the, the only other place that we cut well, there's two other things that we did, but one of them was in a theater in Natestown and like a beautiful early 20th century theater. I cut piano in there for like three or four songs because they had a Steinway Grand on the stage. And that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go there to um, with him and we're going to do that again. They gave us the keys for uh, like several days and we set up gear in there and we cut a bunch of stuff all over this record. And I learned a lot. <laughs> You know, just brought, I brought good mics. I bought some good mic pre's, and we just did it. And um, and now, now we're really going to do it. I'll send you a picture of this place. It's amazing. I would love to see it. I would love to see it. I'm trying to imagine the difference. It's like a yang to the yin of your studio, right? This expansive, glorious place. Yeah, they have a they have a a Facebook page. I know, and there and an Instagram. This Sheboygan Opera House. Look, I mean, the, the, they're the coolest people there and, and they have um, a, like an amazing place and they do incredible shows. Really like it's, like it's a beautiful small theater and they get stuff in there that seems like kind of local to me and the town supports it. I don't know, it's a cool place. Yeah, you're lucky to have that in, I guess, you know, yeah. Nathan can, can hook that up. Listen, I, I thank them profusely. I don't know what else I can do. Yeah. I mean, you made the record and, and you mentioned... Um, the, the third musician I can't use, is it Rene? Renee? Rennie. Rennie Logan. And that's from, he was in Extra Virgin too, right? And Rennie was the singer in Extra Virgin. So that's a long-rooted uh, relationship for you. It's not, it's not a new thing. Yeah, I played with Rennie in two different bands from 1999 to like 2006, maybe. You know, just kind of, like we, we had that band and then it was the two of us with Royston, who was the Space Hog singer, you know, and it was just kind of like, a, I don't know, it was like a trio, you know, <laughs> I'm not a good enough guitar player to do that, though. 
you know, you really got to be a ripping guitar player to, to, to do that, you know. I mean, don't tell yourself short, you know, but but hey, you know yourself and, and we love your guitar work. And I, I thought it was really interesting to I was reading, I don't know if it was a review or some of your comments, but that it was really just the three of you on this record. But there's so many sounds. There's there's analog synth sounds, there's all kinds of percussion and strings and so so how did that come together? All the, the grandiosity of the record. See the model is sort of the only thing I mean, the model is like Steely Dan, right? You know, you're overdubbing like but but the way that you're overdubbing is like and, and you know, Nate is is the best guitar player I've ever seen. That is hands down. I mean, he's just fucking unbelievable. He really is. And and he constantly surprises me like I could make several very different sounding variations of this record based on what he did. And and this is the way we do it. Like I would. Once I had what, like I just described with the piano and the drums, right? And, and it's all, you know, we've got a metronome. So we're keeping the tempo kind of steady. And the trick is to make it sound like you don't have a metronome. And then I would, I would sing, you know, I would just start singing and, and coming up with that and, and, and uh, putting guitars on it. And then Nate would come here, you know, I, I would, he would come here for like four days or something. And I would, I would just work him. I'm just like Nate. Do I say take this guitar and just, uh, it just cut like this song, you know? And he would do it like four or five times in a row, like from top to bottom. I don't like to do like punches, you know. I like, I like to have a like a thought, like a, because when I think about a song, I'm like, well, it's a performance, you know. That's you know, for ideally it would be for a listener in a live environment, right? And all the musicians would be communicating the entire thought without interruption and the listener would be uninterrupted. So, you know, that's the sort of, you know, underlying <laughs> thought. And, but, and, and, and I don't know how to do any other thing. I don't know how to make drum loops. I don't know how to, to um, not, I mean, maybe I could learn it. I will plug up a Moog. I will plug up any old keyboard. I'll plug up any drum machine. Like I just got this thing. I'm trying to figure out, this thing, I'll make it make some sounds, but you know, it's all accidents. And then the stuff that I do know, and and but really, it's this. It, I have to be able to sit down and play the song and sing it from beginning to end on acoustic guitar. That's the only way I know it's good enough to cut like that and go through all that hell, you know, to get it to translate. Well, you might be a novice with it all, but the early returns are really strong, which is actually what made me reach out. I'm not. I'm not a novice in the sense that like you know that like i've been obviously i've been in world-class studios and i've been recorded right. by great producers so and i know like i've you know worked closely with them and kind of watched what they do it's just that's a big step you know and, sure. and i'm not interested really in being a producer <laughs> or anything ideally somebody else would have done all of this for for me but it didn't work out that way so uh not yet but hey you know some 
producer might step up and say they want to record you. Though, you know, and I kind of did get into that aspect of it, which is like, oh, now I know exactly what, what it's going to sound like. I just have to like figure out how to do that. And I know that I can get there and I'm not going to get in, like, I'm not going to get, you know, somebody else is not going to corrupt it other than Nate. You know, I just I trust completely. And, um, and Rennie, who I trust completely, you know, and in terms of his instincts and the drums, he came in here and like, I had him for maybe four days, five days in this room, like on like two different sessions. And, you know, at the time we're just goofing around, but the second he sits behind the kit, that dude knows what to do. Like he knows, like he knows songs really well. He's written God knows how many songs, way more than me. And he knows like, like, I mean, he's really, you know, his, he's a virtuoso, you know, or, or like when his chops are up and drumming, he's one of my favorites ever, you know? So um, he's reluctant to be in the band. And that's why we're not adding him as town Stevens and Lopez until he agrees. <laughs> you know, to the terms. Right. <laughs> well, I was, my next question was going to be, do you envision with him or not, uh, like taking this to the, the live stage to be able to perform this music? Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm going to the, uh, see here now festival this weekend with Rennie, you know, is that Danny's thing in Jersey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The melons played that a few times, right? Yeah. Well, we played it once. Once. Okay. I know, you know, I, 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 like Christopher was just calling me just now. I'm, I'm, I'm screening him. <laughs> get back to him, you know, but he's coming in. So like, we're going to, I think there's going to be some kind of jam or something. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to take it back to the beginning. Cause like I hear you're in Philly and you lived in New York and you lived in LA, but I hear the Mississippi in, in this record. Yeah. I can't get it out of me, dude. It's never going to leave. I mean, you yeah. know, it's just, you know, you grow up in that and you're just kind of wired that way. And um, it's a natural speed, you know, that, that I adhere to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I may behave erratically if you try to speed me up. You know what I mean? That's why all the tempos are slow on my record. That's how I think they should be. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the your, the metronome of your life, of yeah, your I, daily existence. I feel like there's something lost, you know, like in terms of, and, you know, this is just sort of like an offhand observation, but in terms of when nothing is performed <laughs> on a record, you know, in, in, in that way, like, and also like, I don't hear a lot of dynamic range in, in rock music these days. And in the generation the Blind Melon was in, you know, sort of the 90s, there was two dynamic ranges it was loud and quiet you know we were just kind of moving around in between but uh not very well but you know there's all the in-betweens too yeah i think that's what separated y'all from that to whatever seattle or grunge was uh the formula wasn't loud to quiet to loud to quiet it, you did it both but in a, you know obtuse and unique ways. We kind of had a bunch of old equipment, you know. We, I mean, we definitely were using equipment that was. I mean, all of it was like 1960s technology or something, you know. But um, and, and but but you know the bands that were really good from that era that you know that everybody knows, um, you know, we loved them too. Like I loved you know 80s like hard rock shit. And, oh, me too. That's where I'm from, man. You're talking Philadelphia, Cinderella, right? They'll start there. Hey, I saw Cinderella twice, and that was a great band. They were awesome. 
Yeah, Tom Kiefer lived in Cherry Hill. We loved Cinderella. They were from up here, but I, 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 when I was like seriously like 15 or 16 years old, I saw them twice. And one time I was on the front row. It seemed to me like they were actually sort of a different type of band and they got a bunch of pressure to get s and got swept up into some sort of like marketing concept or something. But they were actually, you know, sort of more like Aerosmith or ACDC or something. You know, they had a little they had a little more they had a lot more a lot more, I thought, um, depth to them than than the, the things that they were paired with. You know, I agree. Yeah, there's like a bluesy cowboy town thing going on there. Kiefer still tours, actually. Oh, it's really? funny because yeah, he makes records that are that are, you know, kind of like an evolution of that. Uh, you know, contemporary hard rock with the bluesy edge. He lives in Nashville. But he still he just did a package tour with like Winger. So he's still kind of getting marketed like that. But I'd go see Tom anywhere, anytime. He's amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, great voice, you know. Yeah. And unique, you know. You know it's him. Yeah. But all y'all, you and, and Glenn and Brad, when you guys were coming out of Mississippi, right, moving to L.A., like, that's what was happening, right, was the Sunset Strip and, and that glam rock arenas. Well, yeah, but it was short-lived at that point. I mean, listen, at first it was just Brad and I who got there in um, at sort of around, I'd say, early fall of 1988. Like, I graduated high school and we worked at him in a meat packing plant. I worked in an abattoir. And so like I went, you know, and I was working, like trying to work double shifts and stuff to make money. And you can see right here, I almost cut my hand off in this place. If you see that scar, it goes all the way from there. Like I'm trying to do this reverse, but um, that was a, uh, the hogs who come down the line, they're, you know, they've been, they just, they're, the abattoir, the kill floor is right there. like and the door that's right by where this window is that close in that room there are three guys with like you know waiters on and standing in blood and they're raking out these drains because that's where they're they're cutting the throats is this a bummer should i not be like should i be should i stop this story no this is life man this is where you came from i want to hear it it's just like you do you're talking about slaughtering so i did make a face right. I worked in this capacity probably for like a month, maybe. Like I kind of moved around the plant and worked in different stuff. But like when they got to me, when they came out that room, there was a giant flamethrower that I was, it was right beside me. It would go, and it would burn all the hair off of the, the car. These are big hogs. These are like, they're very big. You know, they're, they outweigh me by a lot. And so then they come through here and, and then, and then I'm cutting the shoulders off. Right. And I've got like chain mail gloves on and like a, a white coat and a hard hat and a knife that's like, you know, deadly sharp and, and a sharpener on my belt, which I'm constantly sharpening. 
Well, I got switched around because somebody was telling me a joke. <laughs> and uh, I got switched around in my hands. I did have my gloves on, and the, but the line had stopped, right? So there was like a break. And then all of a sudden it switched back on, and I was kind of like caught off guards. And, and, and I don't know, I cut my hand. And <laughs> it just, it was, it was, I thought, that's it. I'll never, my dreams are dead. And so I went into the infirmary, which was right, I was on the night shift, I think. It was right before, uh, and, and uh, so maybe it was right after breakfast. And they said to me, we're just going to put some butterfly bandages on that. You can get back out on the line. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. Right back to work? Yeah. And so anyway, so Brad and I moved to L.A. Uh, we drove from, from Mississippi, like, all the way. Uh, in in a, in a 1981 Honda Civic hatchback, and with all of our belongings, and I believe each of us had about eight hundred dollars in our pocket. And this, and so we got there. It, we, we drove all the way. All kinds of hijinks happened along the way. I'd never been left at Memphis. You know, I'd never been anywhere west ever. I'd never been to a big city other than Atlanta, and so um, and it wasn't really even all that big back then. But anyway, so uh, we go all the way across on I-40. And, you know, I think at some point we were on I-10 or whatever. And then we get to L.A. and, and, and we're, we're going, you know, through the San Bernardino Valley. And we get on the, the, the Hollywood Expressway. I think it's the 101 or whatever. We think, okay, well, we're almost there. And we kept going and kept going and kept going until we went all the way out the other side of the valley before we realized we passed it. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great rookie move. Yeah, and so we drove all the way back. We found the sign for Sunset Boulevard, and we got out and we drove straight down. And I'll never forget this: we went to Tower Records on Sunset Strip and bought the Jane's Addiction record the first night we were there, because we had read a magazine article about it. Nothing shocking. Yeah, eighty-eight, right? Yep. Like we didn't see, we didn't have access to any of this information where I'm from. Like you didn't know anything like this. You knew what was on the radio and, and, and you knew country music. And so, but you didn't know like anything about other types of music that, that, you know, was not popular, like hits top, like top 40 hits, you know, you just didn't know. Or at least in my, you know, where I am from, I mean, you knew about Elvis because that's, he's from there, you know, you know, it's about stuff like that. But, um, and so, uh, anyway, um, we got there and we did, we went up to the, uh, down sunset and we walked down and at that time when you would go there, you could barely get down the street because there, you know, they would put a, um, there'd be, you know, it was jam packed with people who look, you know, who were dressed in sort of that style, you know, the, um, the, the hair metal you know, style. I mean, they look like, you know, sort of interchangeable. Um, just like, you know, just like all the people in grunge bands did, right? The 
Decline of Western Civilization Part Two. You could see all the getups, and I wanted to be like that little me Cinderella fan in Jersey. I wanted to where you were in that moment. I could never get the hair right. I could never get it right. You know, <laughs> but but um, but yeah, that was their uniform, right? <laughs> so, but there's I, I got no judgment on them because I I really like some of that music, you know. I, in my senior year of high school, the, like the like, I heard the the Guns N' Roses record, and it blew my it changed it blew my mind. I had sort of moved away from you know I liked you know some of those bands, but then I kind of and I always liked like Iron Maiden. I, I was kind of moving. I listened, started listening to a little bit like a lot more of the Stones and you know, the generation prior, you know, um, I listened to a lot of, um, a lot of R.E.M. I was going to say the Athens scene had to be bubbling. Well, that's the only one we knew about because they would come play at the frat parties, you know, Mississippi State, which was 15 minutes from me or Ole Miss or whatever, you know. So I don't know, we just, uh, we, we got there and, you know, you, you would walk down Sunset and people would put a flyer in your hand, you know, for their show at 2 p.m. on a Sunday at Gazzari's or like on a on, on a Tuesday at one, you know, at noon, you know, at, yeah. at, at, at the um, matinees. Right. And, and they were paying to play that show. Right. And so it just it, it had become like this crazy thing, and, which I think Guns N' Roses had a lot to do with it because they were just different. And I, I mean, I, I could sense that right away. I just loved them. You know, I, I was like such a Me high too. school and I love that. I still think it's one of the greatest rock records ever made, you know. Yeah, certainly for a debut. That's sort of back in black define the genres, you know, right? It's define this genre that's in my mind. Anyway. And, Interesting, yeah. Yeah, but they were a little bit more they were even raw, you know, right? They were, yeah. And, but, and so, yeah, we were out there and it took us a, a while. Nobody rents an apartment. We, we didn't have anywhere to live. And we would pull up in the Honda Civic with all of our stuff in it to look at a place. And they'd be like, no. And, I mean, it took like six months or something. Uh, we were living in like uh, nightly, like weekly hotels on Hollywood Boulevard. Like no idea what these places are for. You know what I mean? Like we just we didn't we didn't you know, what's a a fine establishment? You know, uh, we didn't know. <laughs> we were so, we <laughs> literally had, you know, we literally had, you know, haystacks coming out of our mouths. You know where you are. You in the jungle, baby. And we just didn't, you know, know what we were doing. So it took us a while to get settled like that, and it was kind of difficult you know we were working believe it or not we transferred to another meatpacking plant out there and um it, we, it was down in in compton and so this is you know this this the mississippi plant and the compton plant were owned by sarah lee and we had somebody make a call on our behalf 
And so we had a job there for a while, but they didn't really have anything to, for us to do. So like Brad and I ended up seriously at this place about two months in, we, we spent the last two weeks on the roof of this enormous plant. They they, they ran out of stuff for us to do. They're like, you guys just go clean up the roof. And so we went up there and they, with, and just threw the tennis ball back and forth. It was bigger than a football field. You could throw a tennis ball like far, you know, in the Bacon, California sun on this white, you know, reflective roof. And they had a couple of like work release, like prisoners. They were there working with us. And these dudes were, you know, they weren't messing around, but we got along and we ended up like sort of befriending these people, you know, Eventually, you know, we started kind of getting it together and writing songs together. He kind of, Brad kind of went his separate way and started building houses. Like we had moved into doing like, you know, just grunt work, like construction, destruction work, you know, like busting up concrete, the jackhammer, that kind of thing. And then um, he started getting really good at carpentry and he's, he's built their houses in Los Angeles that Brad has built from ground up like nice house. Like he really is like gifted in this way. You know, like a real, I don't know. He, he was always very capable. He could do anything like that. I, on the other hand, got a job on Melrose Avenue at a rock and roll memorabilia store. So I didn't want to do anything, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to actually work. That kept you in the mix, right? You're right in the, the middle of town. You're not out. Whatever. I mean, we were, we were scheming. We were looking for people, you know, we just didn't like know what to do. You know, we thought we're, our, th our initial thought, like before we left was, oh yeah, we're going to go out there, meet some like-minded people, pick up a, a record deal and get our money. And that'll be it. You know, we'll be, it'll be great. It'll, it'll be, you know, it's just, you got to take those steps and, that's the dream, right? That's like Axel on the bus on the Welcome to the Jungle video with the taste stick coming out his mouth, right? The bizarre <laughs> thing that, that you bring that up, actually, is because that's exactly who Shannon was when I met him. Like, he was that dude. And not only that, he was getting off the bus to go stay at Axel's house. You know, like, that's how, you know, that's how, like, I, I mean, I didn't know any of those people. You know, I was like a kid, you know, just like they're, they're, they're endless me's, right? They're endless me's out there, but there was only one of him for sure. And everybody knew it when he got there. Like, this is my homeboy, Shannon Hoon from Lafayette, who was covering that version on the double team in Indiana. And he did such a basic job. So once you see another record with me. You know, what had happened was Brad and I had had made some songs, right? And like, you know, we're kind of looking for a singer, but, you know, Brad was singing. You know, we had No Rain, I think. I mean, he had already written that. We had um, Tones of Home sort of like mostly done. We had we had kind of a thing. It sounded like something.
and um, we had a drummer, and uh, we didn't know Christopher yet at that point. And then um, somebody like got our tape, and you know that knew this guy Amit Erdogan. I don't know if you know who he is. Of course, but you know this woman, she she young woman who knew Amit Erdogan. You know, um, who just kind of was like you know working in the business, and um, she liked our sound, and so she had the tape, and she was like kind of talking around, and, like pitching. You know, talking to Amit Erdogan about it, and Amit, I think, said something to her about Shannon, who had just arrived in town off of the bus, just like that, because he had gotten into big trouble, you know, back home. And, and he was he was not, he, we couldn't go back and play in Indiana for a long time. Like, he had to get that stuff sorted out. Like, he was not, he was not supposed to be in Los Angeles, let's put it that way. You know, I didn't really want to go to college. I worked in the, the local factory job in Lafayette. I kind of had backed myself in a corner and wanted to move out of Indiana because it, I just was getting in too much trouble there. But he was there, and, 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 and in Hollywood, you know, we kind of started integrating into whatever, you know, with people like, you know, you'd be at a party and some rock star would show up or something. You know, we're kind of starting to get into some group of people, I guess, and we didn't know really. But um, I, I heard about him before I met him, and he'd only been there for like a week. Like everybody knew Shannon was because, you know, he came there staying with Axel, go out with Axel, you know, get in a fight, punch somebody twice his size and like, you know, get thrown in jail. Like he was just like he was insane. Blind melon singer and alcohol rehab vet Shannon Hoon was jailed on Monday after, according to police, he allegedly assaulted a bartender and several police officers. But then he would. But he was absolutely thrilling to hang out with. And he was a super warm friend, you know, and, and, uh, you know, but, you know, and figured all that out later, you know, but, uh, when I met him, I don't know, you know, we, we, we loved each other, you know, what can I say? And, and look, he, he was not, he had a, a, a big heart, you know, he just, he, he couldn't handle alcohol and, and it just flipped him, you know, and, and he didn't like authority at all. And he didn't like somebody telling him what to do. He was strong willed, you know, but he's pure of heart. I met Rogers and Brad like the first month that I moved there. We hit it off pretty good. We had a lot in common. Yeah, this is probably the point where I tell you, like, y'all are one of my favorite bands all time, and I've listened to the three Shannon records as much or more than any other band. Uh, and, you know, I was the kid writing the lyrics in my notebook in high school, and I saw y'all once open it for Lenny Kravitz at the Tower Theater in September of 93. Wait, where's the Tower? In it's in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. That, that was probably a pretty decent show, right? I mean, I was 15, 16. I only wanted to be 16 and free, yeah. But I, I loved it. I mean, I loved Lenny, too. It was a perfect pairing. I mean, the cliff notes would be, I remember, I just switched from cassettes to CDs in the summer of 93, and I bought your cd did you buy a record twice oh more more than twice. well okay but on two different formats right you bought the cassette and then, we, then we sold it to you again no it was it was just cd like allison chains dirt cypress hill <laughs> temple uh second album black sunday and blind mountain self-titled were like three of my and blue oyster cult greatest hits those were like my first batch of cds i love blue oyster cult oh dude amazing On that note, apropos of that live show, 
We have. <laughs> we recorded almost all of our shows. And we didn't, nobody knew, like, remembered it or, or knew where they were, really, until our manager found them. Our manager at the time found them in his garage uh, in, like, 2021. And he, he, uh, he emailed me. I hadn't talked to him in years. And he emailed me and he said, I have these tapes. I don't know. Like, I feel like, you know, you guys need to have them and deal. I don't know what to do with them. I didn't know I had them. You know, they got moved around from office to office, and, which, you know, we didn't remember. And so we got them all and tra- and, and, and immediately, like, you know, uh, trans- transferred them, you know, high resolution digital copies of all of it. It's probably about 200 shows. So I listened to a lot of it. I would say, you know, probably like half of the sh- half of those recordings are are like they're not there. There's something wrong with them, like technically that makes them like not great, like this digital distortion or we, I mean, we were taking ADATs, you know, at, like at a certain point by like midway through this process until the end, we were taking a rack of ADATs and multi-tracking our shows and not going back and like cataloging and listening. OK, and, and anyway, so. Some of them are messed up for whatever reason. They, the, the tapes have deteriorated, whatever. I'd say of the remaining, but on a lot of those, there are like entire tracks that are unbelievable, mind-blowingly good recording. <laughs> like they sound, some of them sound great. Some of them are just wrong. Like, oh, the vocal mic's out or, or the, you know, there's no, the drums, you know, are like blowing out, every, whatever, anything. Guitars are too loud. And then for like the remaining 50%, they're like, they're close. But then there's probably about 20 or 30 shows that are like, they sound like freaking Frampton comes alive or something. Cause 30 years from now, we're all gonna be old. Think about that. So, but we're young today. We're milking our youth for as long as we can. So we gotta enjoy it while we are. Now there's so many things these shows like i think that people who like blind melon only know about half the story if even that because you would never know how amazing shannon was unless you heard all these shows or like like, you know a bunch of a bunch of them because like every it's different every night he's funny in a different way or scary like he's saying things you're like oh where are you going with this like you're on the edge you're kind of like cringing and then he like brings it back and a lot of people have a lot of different religious beliefs. All I know is that I watch the news a lot. Sit and watch. And you sit and you try and understand why people kill one another over each other's different religious beliefs. And um, 
you know, I'm not, maybe I haven't brushed up on what religion is all about, but I didn't think that killing was something that really had to do with proving which religion was right. I think everybody has their own God inside of them. It's just up to you to find it. Something that's going to help you grow as a human being. Whatever it is, it's different for each one of us, I believe. At least that's what I think about it. There's a song called Holy Man. Like his connection and rapport with an audience is something I just don't know anybody who's like like that really these days. But maybe I just don't go because I don't go to a lot of live shows. But like he just had like he was brutally honest, never the same. And like at times he was like transcendent in his singing. You know, there were times his throat was rough. You know, and that might be one of the reasons we would you know say that show is probably. But I'm trying to get these damn things released, but it's like it's a pain in the ass, you know, because we don't own these recordings. Man, I hope that some can see the light of day. I'm telling you that, like, anybody who's a Blind Metal fan is going to, like, be blown away by it. I, and and I, don't, I don't care. Like, I just want the label to put them out instead of preventing us from doing it. Uh, I didn't even think about that angle, the label. Because, like, in the world of, like, the jam bands, like Grateful Dead, Fish, et cetera, the tapes just flow. The soundboard recordings just flow. On the Nugs.net platform. Yes. Yeah, I'm a subscriber. I love notes. We've already, we've already talked to them, but it's like, you know, and we talked to the, we, I, I don't even know who to talk to anymore because, you know, our catalog has gone from, well, it was EMI, and then it was like, you know, it's been shuffling along. We got Sony Universal, and so I don't know. Nobody will, nobody will like, you know, I mean, and I do understand that they have big priorities in terms of like current hits and whatnot, but um, hardly. I don't care. Let's just do a quick deal, right? I'll, I'll put them out. I'll tell you where they're not making you any money is not being out there. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't that know. That manager, that's Chris with like the black mullet and all the videos. Chris Jones, yeah. Yeah. He's all in all the video. I mean, like I, we used to watch the letters from a porcupine VHS religiously, you know, mm-hmm. he's in a lot of that footage and such. And mm-hmm. I knew he was like, you know, like a sixth member of the band in a lot of ways yeah. in those years. He seemed to be a major part. Yeah. He was he was he was definitely a brother and um, close with Shannon, you know, and did us a super solid by sending this. You know, our manager's from Connecticut. He's a local boy. He's the only person that we have any troubles with at all. <laughs> Things happen over the years, and 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 you know, people. I think everybody's got regrets about <laughs> relationships that have gone awry or whatever you know sure. yeah you know, like where you still think you, you still think very highly of the person you know i mean you all lived through the unthinkable and uh you know when i when i think about the most impactful losses of you know music's my life and i love the dead and garcia and then like generationally i feel like people point to cobain and in some places even a bradley noel but for me and for my group it was shannon shannon was my hero uh, we, our, my college band was called Goodfoot because of the Goodfoot <laughs> workshop.
I can't overstate the impact that the music made. And, and what's funny is we were talking about glam rock and stuff. And the first time I ever was exposed was the Dear Old Dad video on Headbangers Ball. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever saw Blind Melon. Back hanging out with Brad and Shannon from the band Blind Melon. Obviously, it was no rain that, that you know, brought you to the level where everybody knew who you were. But that's not how I found you. And I was also always kind of connected you to, even though you didn't play Horde Fest, the, the, the generation of sort of like jam bands, you know, like of that era. More than grunge, I, I connect you to those bands. Yeah, well, I, I personally never understood that. I mean, I, I do know that we we could translate to a lot of audiences. Listen, Shannon was irresistible. And even people who like, I, I, I don't know, all this genre stuff is sort of silly to me, you know? Right. Because I, I kind of like, if, if you're a great example of what somebody calls a particular genre, I'm kind of interested in it, you know what I mean? And so, like, I, I was kind of surprised and didn't really understand because I didn't, come along with stuff like this but like you could be uncool because you liked a particular kind of music you know what i mean like that concept was so foreign to me that i was like what are you kidding of course i like round and round by rat that's a fucking great song You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, um, and I like stuff that's, you know, I don't know, I like Big Star. I don't think they're that. Brilliant. Sure. It's just sort of in how it's presented. You know, this none of this stuff, none of this stuff is all that complicated. You know, none of this stuff goes in the Louvre, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, uh, Carnegie Hall or whatever, or Lincoln Center. I mean, maybe, maybe they would. I mean, at its core, you know, pop music, rock music is mostly folk art, you know, refined to such a degree that it becomes irresistible to the broadest possible group. <clears throat> you know, I like hit songs, you know, I never wa- I never thought it was a great idea to try to have to not have a hit. That seems dumb to me, but uh, maybe I don't, I, you know, I, I don't I'm not. I'm not looking to give my money away to a corporation or endorse, you know, corporate values that I don't agree with, but I do want people to like help me stay alive so I can keep doing this. I mean, it can be both, right? Can't you have a hit song and still be true to the integrity of, I was, but you know, you kind of, and we were, but you do kind of lose. I mean, we only had one hit. I don't know. Maybe if we had a bunch more, we would become decadent, you know? Well, hit as far as charts go, I would say like change is a generation defining song, even though it didn't chart like No Rain. Should have been, you know, like an actual chart hit, but I don't think the recording of it is. I think Shan's vocal is stellar, but that like that's one of those ones I'd like to take back in terms of the, the how the music is presented. I think we could have done it better. No. They'll all look at me and say, and they'll say, hey, look at him, I'll never 
And he came to the table with that song, right? That was not a group, right? Right. right. Shannon showed up with Change. Right. And, 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 and to be honest, like, like I've always like had this sort of nagging feeling that we kind of let him down on that tune because that is a monster song. I mean, it, it's, it's, to me, it's like, it is, you know, sort of the defining like statement of the band, even though it wasn't the biggest hit. Um, it, it captured sort of the general essence of him and um and his, and it, it captured and, and i'll say this and it's true it's like when and this is nobody's fault really <laughs> i mean other than our own but like we never got a, like the way his voice sounds in the room when you would sit like if he sat in this room in this chair and and you were live in this room and he sang to you with a guitar is ethereal and the, and the first time i heard it, it was, you know him do that was that song I just, you know, I thought, you know, that he was, his, I thought, you know, immediately I was struck by how unusual his voice is or was, you know, I think at the time, you know, I didn't know anybody who could sing like, like that, uh, you know, like, like in that sort of high tenor, that tenor thing that he had as a, you know, up in the Rod Stewart land, you know what I mean? Or whatever it was, or Janice Jo. I mean, I, I thought he sounds like a girl. He was softer and more like, angelic than 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 rod stewart or even janice like he was like it sounded like a freaking beautiful flute or something i don't know it was just beautiful it'll make you feel good over my shoulder it get me down and got me tied up till i grew old i would feel me inside of you like you wanted to But is it just the pains in your head That are thrilling me Another life is falling down to its knees But I'll never smile the way That I did like that day Everything will be okay we were loud, you know, and, and uh, it pushed him. And so it pushed him to another thing that I think, you know, we would have probably wanted to like, we didn't make the, we didn't make the best Black Melon record and I'll, it'll, I'll carry that to my grave, you know. For the debut, you mean? No, I'm just saying. Like, just in general, you didn't. You the direction didn't. that we were going and what I feel like we were about to do, I, I feel like, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I get a sense of that trajectory just in terms of the, who was in the band and, and what everybody's flow and, and, and capabilities were. I just felt like that we were about to do something like gangbusters, you know, and it just, yeah. You know. I mean, for me, I like the chapter two and 2.5, you know, yeah. soup and Nico way, way better personally, just my taste, even though it's less of that jammy stuff and it's heavier, it's a darker, but the new Orleans energy, I really love what, whatever Andy Wallace sauce was. He didn't bring the new Orleans. He brought the microphones and like basically recorded what we were doing and, and managed to get it down because he came in and listened to everything. We played those songs basically from top to bottom. I don't think he made, he may have made a couple of suggestions, like maybe do this part twice as long or something, but that was it. It was done. Like we, we wrote it and we could play it, you know, basically from top to bottom. And that's what we did. And so we kind of did that set up in a couple of different rooms and that Kingsway, right. Yeah, the extraordinary studio that Dan Lemoyne had built. And um, it was like, 
we, we ended up in one room <laughs> with the drum set up there. And all, I think almost all, if not all the drums are tracked in that space other than skinned, which I think Glenn tracked downstairs. It was not like a, it was not a recording studio. You know what I mean? It was not like a place where you would go and there would be a glass wall and there would be, you know, like there was separation and you could get sonic, you know, you get really clean takes. It was a bunch of noisy, enormous rooms with marble floors and just endless opportunities for just killer shit. That, that, that building was incredible. like um like a really great i think he had the console that like whose next was cut on or something oh, wow. was in there that's i think it's like uh I, I, christopher will know this more than me i don't or glenn but i just I, I remember hearing something like this and they had i think the monitors were from abbey road or something like big old school speakers like just for reference monitors and they're they're useless for recording right it's like the only thing they're good for is like after everybody's all the like serious people are gone and they're having a party and you know you want to jam some big ass speakers that's the best you're ever going to hear shit it was amazing so i did that a lot there but um because i you know we kept the lights on there for at night for a long time you know but andy god bless him because we were chaos and he was absolute precision and he kept us on schedule and he for the most part and i kept like he knew, like, I, I somewhere he has studio notes for that session, which are basically, you know, like, he's, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he got done. Well, what was the gimp thing? The, 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 in the video, he, you know, he's got the guy dressed as the gimp. I, I got him to put that mask on. It's like, <laughs> because, if, because if you know, if you know Andy, and my God, he was a, he was just such a gentleman, just absolute, just a wonderful person, you know, and, when he talked to you, he sounded exactly like Alan Alda. <laughs> like, you can conjure up Alan Alda's voice right now in your mind, King. Well, it sounds like you're imagining that I said to myself every day, I'm not this person. That's exactly what his voice sounds like. Uh, I had some reservations based on the fact that, that there was going to be so many systems that had to be set up just with running wires up staircases and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, the, uh, the vibe of the place... So positive, everybody agreed that that would outweigh the hassles. So, like, you would look at him, this kindly man. You know, he was, you know, he was older than us. And I saw a picture, a recent picture. It looks exactly the same. You know, I was like, damn. What's crazy is I, I knew his name from the back of like the Slayer CD. So when I he saw he was going to be producing, you know, it was kind of a head scratcher. But like I said, it, it came out so great. But you mentioned it was more New Orleans than it was Andy, right? Like the. Yeah, well, he mixed Nevermind, right? Right. He mixed, uh, and he had he came straight from doing the Jeff Buckley record, which he produced wow. and mixed. 
and came to us. And I we met Jeff there because he came in a couple of times and was like listening to mixes and like and then he came and then we went and saw him one night down at like the Howlin' Wolf or something. Wow. With Andy. The one who made me so old Don't be like the one who left behind his name Cause they're waiting for you Like I waited for mine And nobody ever came Don't be like the one who made me so old Don't be like the one who left behind his name And he was brilliant, you know, such a cool dude. And that's right. He died in 94, 94, 95. This is right before he passed, right? And right, like, during the time. Wow. I, I think we had just gotten done recording this but record because um, at that time when he died, because I, I don't recall being with Andy. Okay. But they were close, you know. They they loved each other. And we, and we loved Andy, too, you know. He was, just, he was just a super sweet dude, and he got that record done for sure. Yeah. Our job. He worked a lot harder for ours than he did for Jeff's, I guarantee you. Making the album in New Orleans is obviously a very testy environment for me. Um, French Quarter is obviously no place for for someone like myself. Do you look back, because I love New Orleans. I go to Jazz Fest every year with my mom and my wife. I've been going since the year 2000. And I have it's like my home away from home. And I always go by Tipitina's. And of course, I've sat outside Kingsway and just thought about Melon, played Melon. Do you look back on that era that time down there, you know, like in the letters from a porcupine video, uh, you're, you have your own house. You're not living at the studio. Y'all kind of like moved to New Orleans and really like embraced the city. You didn't just go make a record and bounce. Yeah. Do you have fond recollections of that? Or do you look back with maybe like shit was out of hand or both? Listen, listen. Right. Exactly. Like what's the good fun, right? When shit's out of hand, you know. You get you get a little sense later on, but I mean, you could you could live for so cheap down there at the time. This is like this time would have been right after we came off the road from our first record. We're like, okay, what the hell are we gonna do? So like me, Brad, and Glenn all moved there right then, and so Glenn moved into that house that you see that I was living in, sort of you know on the video. My name is Rogers. I uh, play guitar in uh, the rock group Blind Melon. And uh, this is my house that I rent in New Orleans. $750, which I feel like is a fair deal considering the condition of the roof. And these cats down here in New Orleans, boy, they'd whip a cat's ass from fucking Indiana like that. Brad moved one block away from that into another house. Now, the house that Glenn moved into at first was occupied by a, a, a man who, like a retired physician who worked with Timothy Leary on the original, like, and was like, he had some of the original acid from the, uh, in his freezer, like he claimed from the Harvard stuff. Yeah, whatever. I like to be really high. Very good. I like to be really high. That house had a, um, an apartment on the back of it where you could like, there was a, there was a common door, you know, that you could lock if you had a, a tenant, but if not, you could open it up and it's part of the house. It was like a split level thing opening up into an indoor pool and a greenhouse. 
And so that's how that's at that at that time where, you know, that I had ended up taking over the entire property. (laughs) I had the I had the house, the little place in the back and the pool and uh, for eight hundred dollars. And so uh, and Brad was a block away. We had been on tour for whatever all that time. So we never even saw each other. Like we just didn't talk to each other for like, I don't know, six months or something. And, uh, but initially I had been living down in the French quarter. So that's really most of that six months happened. But, um, and once Glenn, he actually bought a house there and then that place opened up. And so then I went there because I literally, I was catching rats in the French quarter that were, they were like possums, you know, in my apartment. And then we kind of right there, uh, started working on songs for soup. Like all of us, I was in that house and that's probably like I wrote, you know, whatever. I think I had like sort of there were three of the songs on the record that were kind of most like mostly mine. Right. And the same with Brad, I think, and Christopher and Shannon, sort of. And you guys like had you really went. Those were some knockdown drag out uh, negotiations for whose songs went on the record. Well, we had a lot of stuff. Right. Like but then some things like I remember, like I really like like Brad. I remember one day when brad and i like we began we resumed resumed relations um but uh i was over at his house and he had he's you know i hadn't heard anything that he'd been working on he played me um what became galaxy is this the place that i want to be is it you i want to see holding on what became Toes Across the Floor. I was like, oh, those are cool, you know, and so, like, you know, I'm sitting there, like, whatever, you know. You know, that's, I'm sitting there with a guitar, with acoustic guitar, while he's, you know, he's got the song, and he's got the arrangement. He's got, mel- I don't remember what, I think that all of the lyrics got changed, but he had melodies, you know, and, you know, he's, he, you know, Brad is really good at that, and um, anyway, so we kind of, like, would have these informal things, and, like, I had, I had a demo with it. You know, I had that thing going. I can't remember what else did I do on that record. I don't know. I had another song on there, but I can't remember which one it is. Oh, this one. That's the funkiest song on the record. The one you just put there on it. Yeah. You know, Harry isn't shake too much. That That is straight funk right there.
and then I had uh, the lemonade. Yeah, well, like for that song, for example, I had like the way I would do it. I would just I would have the whole thing, my guitar part from top to bottom, and then you know anything I might be able to play, I would make on the demo or whatever. The way that we the, the stuff would happen would be like you know some people would take their demos a little further than others but it usually was like here's a song and i would sit there and i would do that and, and, and you know and then and then glenn would get that going like literally glenn knew exactly what to do at the very beginning the whole time and he was fucking bored and that's the, that's the truth he can do anything man he, the the hero he was by far you know, more, you know, just in terms of his talent and, you know, musicality just was beyond us. But, um, you know, he, he, he managed to suppress that reasonably okay for a while. Yeah, that was it. You know, we just would work it out in the room for a, a bit and then we would record it and then we would give it to Shannon and he would go away. But he, usually he would be kind of sitting there and listening and like, he'd, he'd be like, oh yeah, do that, do that, do that, you know, like while we worked it out. And then... He would take it and go away, and, and then you would kind of forget about it. You would think, because there's a bunch of things like that that kind of floated away, you know, they didn't, they didn't come back to us. But then usually, though, he would come, and sometimes you would do something and you would think, there's absolutely no way he could sing anything over this. It's too crazy. Like, I would think Dump Truck, for example. It's like, when I listen to that track, like it's an instrumental track, I'm like, well, what the hell is he going to do over that? And I remember saying that at the time, like, I remember, like, that's an example of something. I put that thing on the end, that little, it goes into, like, a coda. I was like, we got to make something where he can put a melody on it. I can't even remember right now. It's like, I want to, you know, I was like, maybe we could do something with that, you know. because the rest of it's a fucking disaster. And then it would come back and it would be amazing that he did that and it worked. Yeah, that's magic. We fought a lot. We had arguments about this stuff, you know, and it's not pleasant, but like ultimately, like I really respected everybody's abilities and I knew that like, okay, you know, really what this is, is not right and wrong. It's like, this dude's got good ideas and I think my ideas are good and, and one or the other is gonna be better, but neither of us really knows, you know? usually and then unless usually i know though that's the only difference i usually get it i'm usually right but um what uh recollections if any do you have for a mouthful 
because I mean, of all the songs on the record, I would say that's the one that still can bring me to tears before the first verse, you know, Jenna and mm -hmm. the, just the, the song is like, almost feels like a microcosm for the band. It's, it's beautiful and sad and uplifting. I just talked to Jenna like twice in the last three days. I haven't talked to her in a long time. We've been talking. A girl named Jenna Krause, she's a beautiful voice, man, this girl. She just kept showing up at our shows, claiming that she could sing. And uh, after seeing her around for, you know, a few weeks, we said, all right, go ahead and sing. And she sang and, and just blew us away. I remember that song and maybe a couple of, like another one as being really like, songs that were built as like a recording you know we, we i don't know if we i mean the way that we recorded that like we as the band if you notice the drums come in right the drums come in we rehearse that the whole opening section is like shannon sat down and got that part right you know and um um i don't know if we did an edit maybe he did cut that with us but i don't think he, he did not cut a vocal live with us as far as i know like, I feel like that track got put together and he sang that vocal. I know exactly where he sang it, too. He sang it in the bathroom on the... There's a bathroom that's on the third floor of the charter side, right over the side door of Kingsway. And, and, and you can, like, if you're... You can get on the roof, like, through there. And so, like, we would spend a lot of time on the roof. But um, that's where he's hearing all those cats and stuff, you know? Listen, man, I got the window open. Hear the cats? Listen. Listen. The ending, the sort of build with there's piano in there and the, there's cello in there. Mike Kelsey played the piano who he or maybe I played I, I maybe I played some piano maybe I didn't I don't think so I might have played the way you worked the piano in whoever did it it just the emotional quotient no no it's my, that's Mike Kelsey he's he's um it's deep he was in Shannon's high school band and he is an absolute monster guitar player I mean he, he's amazing like he's definitely worth checking out he came down I think for a few days and cut that and then we had I think there's some other stuff on there, but Christopher played the lap steel, sort of a slide on the lap steel, which was, um, I think that adds a whole lot to the song. I didn't do much on that song, to be honest. Like, I have an electric guitar, whatever. Like, it's one of those ones that'd be like, I probably thought about that a little more.
Yeah. You have a really a, a riff that stands out, a descending riff. I just wanted to kind of get this the scoop on that. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Miles, too, because I love Breakestra. You know, the live hip-hop band Breakestra and Miles, who played cello. How does he get into the picture? He had a band called he Inclined, and they were a trio, and they were kind of really eclectic. Like, I would say that they were like, I mean, to me, they could have been like Dave Matthews or something. Like, like they had kind of you know, they might have appealed to the same audience, you know, and, and, but like three really great musicians. And so they were on tour with us for a long time on our first record playing clubs. So we just became friends, uh, you know, kind of kept, he played with us at the Woodstock show. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Everybody say hello to Miles. You know, just for the record, Miles is a Coca-Cola drinker, not a Pepsi drinker. Is this song called Soup? But his dad, you know, I mean, his dad right. was a, you know, in Little Fred Feet, Tackett. You know, yeah, Fred not, Tackett. So, you know. Yeah, it's a good guy to know. And I, I love, I just love that quirkiness, the cello. Yeah. And I bet you he would tell you this, too. The cello is tough when you... You introduce a band with drums and guitars and whatnot. And, and like, it doesn't always work, you know? Yeah. I think it works in a studio setting, sure. but it's tough live, you know? And because, uh, you know, you, the only way, you, you know, to get, I mean, especially when you're dealing with a bunch of dumbasses like we were, like, we had, we were diamond amps and, like, I mean, it was, it was loud. We were a loud band. The cello. People, people were shocked. You know, they, they would, I think that they thought we would be, you know, sort of a, a little more agreeable but we, yeah. but we were loud yeah the the cello stuff on like saint andrews well the recording beautiful right And I'd be remiss. Everybody always wants to know, because um, I love Soup. And, you know, obviously since the film came out, Danny's film that he made with Shannon's tapes, all I can say, which I wrote a expansive piece on for our site. Did you note my performance? Yeah, always. Always. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can read it if you'd like. It's, you, I, I'm proud of it. <laughs> oh, but, that's, I appreciate that, man. Nonetheless, I wanted to yeah, know why is Soup not on Soup? Like what? What could possibly knock a song that good off an album? But you still name the album, I, or is it some kind of inside baseball joke? Okay, well, well, okay. Here's the question then: What song would you take off of the Soup record and put on there? Uh, I don't know. Everybody would say Lemonade. No, I like that. Lemonade because it's like the unhinged Shannon. Like it gives you a dose of like why he's so batshit crazy on Lemonade. Oh, how nice to have a night you. 
that's the basis for the for the for the intro and outro right that's that's the um the basis for the horn part like kermit ruffins that whole like uh i was like i was like i had this you know i haven't played this since we recorded it probably so it's that and so i basically kermit came over with his like uh on a i think it was on super bowl sunday and um we had we were going to cook a meal and do all the stuff they pulled up they came up and in, in like two toyota pickups with tubas drums a, a, a bass drum you know these kids are like there's there must have been their kids in there like 11 12 years old and this is kermit like young kermit you know he, he later went on to great heights you know but this is no i don't know how he really knew who he was then i didn't but um and so they rolled in you know we had somebody make a call you know what i mean and and so like he showed up and um and i said here's what like like i i love the you know the I love the the second line brass band stuff. You know, I'm living in a neighborhood where the parades come down the street, you know, and like any musician gets enthralled by that stuff. Right. Because it's amazing. And, and you know, so um, I was like, you know, that's what we're trying to do, you know, because a new Orleans funeral is, is, is a dirge as you march to the funeral with the body. And then it's a celebration on the way out, you know? And that's the way it was set up. And I said, that's the melody. I just sang that to them, and they did that literally within five minutes. They did the top, and then they went to the end. I was like, oh, fucking hell, that's so amazing. <laughs> you know, but it was like, very. I mean, and, and um, that was like the theme. And, you know, after everything that happened, you know, after the record came out, it just like, it's just too yeah. much, you know, it's too much to even contemplate. To answer your question, I would take skinned. I would I would knock skinned, even though I love skinned. I love the kazoo, but I if you ask me what would I replace for soup, it would probably be skinned. I don't know that that song was I think mostly recorded by Christopher in a hotel room in St. Louis, and like we took those tapes and I think I played over like that's that's a Christopher song. Is one of those songs that that song is a hit song. It's a good song. Yeah, I'm not knocking it. It's a hit song in a, in a genre genre that doesn't exist you know what i mean yeah when will i realize that this skin i'm in hate is in mind and when will the kill be too much meat for me to hide oh, hey i could really use a couple of hands to complete one
It's it's a weird and like I don't know if the record comes off like I see I thought about this because Soup is also like Soup was a song that was like Christopher and Shannon had the whole introductory part, right? Christopher had made a beautiful recording, like a like a real recording with like two guitar parts that like you know, sort of worked through well, you know, like his, his and he's doing one like an opening guitar and then Shannon had that vocal in the top half. This is before the drums come in. The clothesline of cold eyes washing away the face before. Now tell me what's wrong. You see, everyone's gone. You gotta do your best to decorate this dying day. This dying day. Like we're looking at like the things that were, this is how I think it went down. Now they may think differently, but I, I, I do know that, you know, we, we, we made conscious decisions. And then like, I'm talking about like why the choices got made for that song not to be on the record. But, and then I was like, well, it feels like if it's in the context of a record, you know, or I don't know, like, I feel like the song wants to go somewhere, you know? And so like, I just did this, I did this part. I had this as like part of another song and I was like that goes perfect Simple. and it allowed Shannon to hang that vocal across and complete the thought in a way that turned out to be kind of epic you know as far as I can tell didn't take away from what they had which was kind of a complete song but that's how that came together and then <clears throat> i don't know it, it just it, I, I i think that we were making i know i was pushing like because i wanted the record to sound like more of like a hard rock record i felt like i don't know you know you're young and you're self-conscious or whatever and i'm like well look i i like all the stuff that we've done and i am you put me in a yacht rock band i'll be happy but I don't like hearing that that like you know that I'm not heavy metal because I am heavy metal. Yeah, no hippie shit, right? That's what y'all. No hippie shit, right? You know, I, I didn't understand all this stuff, you know. But I was like, I do like I want to make a heavier sounding record because I could see like if we're out for a live audience, that's fun to play, you know. Because when we would do that live, people just go ape shit. It was crazy. But like we had all these like song songs that were kind of mellow, and we just you know it was it was just not. 
it wasn't like as, 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 you know, at the time we didn't know how to deliver that well, you know what I mean? And like make that just as substantial sounding in a way. Like we just young and might want to like do some, you know, some hell raising. Yeah. It's like Neil Young, right? Yeah. You Neil Young, you got your harvest moon and then you got rocking right. in the free world, you know, right. Rust. Yeah. You can be yeah. heavy and you can be folky. And I think you all do that really well, even if you didn't realize it. We wanted to be like sort of like more of like a hopped up Almond Brothers type thing, but like, like I don't know, that's like our, but we, with a little weirder, you know, like not so straight blues. Like you go into kind of traffic land every now and then. It's like, and Jane's, you hear the Jane's weirdness too. Well, that's not. A, I mean, that, they, I don't know if they really influenced us as a band because we were already who we were by that time. But it was like we definitely loved what they were doing. In the first record, I feel like there's some of that Jane's vibe a little bit, just to my ears, you know. But I could just be inserting that there. When I when know? I hear that, but 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 most of those songs would have been, or a lot of those songs are written by, really by the time that stuff was like everywhere. But I don't know, maybe. I mean, I certainly loved them like right away when I heard them, and uh, but I wasn't writing the vocal melodies, and that to me is where that band is. Right. More, uh, but it's the thing. The reason why I think that's if Shannon sings that interval that Perry would sing a lot, you're going to hear that because he's in the same register a lot. Maybe that's what it is that they're both There's not very many male singers who are in that register. And also just the diversity of, you know, you got I Would For You or Jane Says or Slow Divers and then stuff like Mountain Song, super heavy, ocean size. So mm-hmm. it's the dynamics. So you, but you we weren't up. like that. Though. No, no. But see, here's, here's the difference. Well, you had change and then you got like uh, Dear Old Dad or, you know, I guess more, right. it's more, more slower. But if you have stuff on that first you record. Oh, Jane's Addiction in that time. No, I didn't catch them until 97. That was, that's to this day, it's, you know, easily in the handful of greatest live shows I've ever seen. I love that band, but I could never play guitar like that or with those sounds. And our band just did not sound like that. We were a country band that just turned their amps up loud. You know, Jane's Addiction had none of that. Jane's Addiction had no blues in their music. It was all California. Yeah, it's very different. It's a very different source. Now, I can see, I can pick up on you know what they do and i love it i love the songs and i think i think he was just magnetic you know perry and dave i mean all of them they were just great they're perfect yeah. brad and i went to see them play at the universal amphitheater this would have been 1989 on the ritual de la habitual tour and it blew my mind
to think they were going to quit in a year. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't I, I haven't listened to them or anybody else from that era since that era. You right. know, I don't know what they do now. But yeah. and I would see them if somebody invited me. Somebody invited me to see the Pixies recently. I went to see them. And and like there's a band, for example, that like if you grew up in, in sort of the place that I grew up, you would know nothing about. Like I never heard the Pixies. I never heard of the Pixies in high school or um and I didn't go to college. So I just really didn't know about the Pixies. And then like Nirvana came out and they're like I remember Glenn saying, They're like the Pixies. And it's because Glenn, you know, he was a little bit smarter than we were. Um, and and I just thought, like, really? I haven't heard the Pixies. Why aren't they as big as Nirvana? <laughs> but right. I went and saw them recently, and I was like, my God, that dude is such a great songwriter. You know, it's like pretty Frank, cool. To catch right, Frank Black. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool to catch something late in life like that. And I really did. Like, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm stunned. I saw him in a great venue here. By the way, Philly has one of the great venues, I think, sounding venues in the country now. That they call it the Met. Yeah, I've been there. Amazing, right next to the Academy of Music on Broad Street. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where I was, but I yeah. know that it's called the Met. Yeah, it's brand new. It's been like, two, three years old. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You've been super generous with your time. You know, I don't want to keep you. We've been nine. We're doing ninety minutes. I went. Are you going to pay me overtime? Because yeah, yeah. You send me an invoice. That's a half hour at time and a half. It is. Yeah, I'm a fair guy. You know, I asked for an hour. You gave me ninety, <laughs> um, and we could talk forever and i you know i would love to do it again down the road if you're so inclined yeah we'll see if we'll see man i mean i mean i i'm listen whatever i i think when i got something new out you know I'll put it, I'll, please do i would love to you know make sure i'm gonna put something out about the record oh be it's time to move on for everyone yeah okay yeah i respect it you've been kind <laughs> enough in the way back machine i wanted to start with the new stuff because i know that's what you're excited about but not every day i get to talk to rogers from blind melon I had to get a little bit of a oh, good, man. Uh, look, I, I understand. I, I, and listen, I appreciate people who are interested in what I did before. I just I can't remember as much stuff about that as I can about the newer things. Totally. Right. Yeah. Well, not, I'm not as reliable of a witness. It's cool. You know? I, you know, I've asked Christopher, he said he'd come on too. So maybe we'll, I'll talk a little bit with him down the road. I'm gonna see him in a few days. Do you want me to put the, put a word in? Yeah. If you, if you like my style, I'm going to put the thumb screws to him. B. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll get him on. You'll, you'll get a call by Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Rogers. And yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I would love I to appreciate show you some that. love, of course. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Send me an email sometime. I will certainly do that. It's great to be connected. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. Peace.
man. That is an emotional sledgehammer every time. This song Shannon wrote for Nico Blue, the news of, you know, her conception. New life. I want to say thank you in the deepest of deep bows to Rogers Stevens. Wow. I mean, I've been editing and tweaking this interview for weeks, and it's, you know, two and a half, three months old. Um, Maybe even three and a half months old. And just been waiting to roll it out with the appropriate attention and reverence and intention. And um, I didn't mention in the intro, but Blind Melon is you know, as much as responsible for not just, you know, the passion I have for live music, having seen them with Lenny Kravitz in 93, such a crucial juncture, not long after my first couple dead shows, and started seeing the Black Crows then, and Fish shortly after, just a part of that uh, elixir that made me, me, Beastie Boys, can't leave them out, you know, as well as the hair bands that we talked about, so, uh, but in another sense, as a music journalist, uh, when you bought the posthumous, or yeah, posthumous uh, Nico album, um, it was a CD-ROM. If you remember those, and in the CD-ROM was this article from Details Magazine by a fellow named Chris Heath, and it was basically like the almost famous ride along, the classic Rolling Stone feature on the band um that this time unfortunately ends uh with shannon's passing and the aftermath and this is the immediate aftermath because this came out in like 96 or or so and reading you know first of all loving blind mel in the way i did and being so crushed by this loss and then uh getting this album of extras was uh, enough but um in addition to that we got like this magnificent, thorough, beautiful, tragic, all the colors, this article, which uh, I'll try to link in the show notes as well, by Chris Heath. Um, And that, along with the Garcia and American Life book by Blair Jackson, I would say Chris Heath's deep dive on Blind Melon um, is, is, is... directly responsible for me wanting to write about music at all forget professionally just just i'd always loved the articles in rolling stone and cream and spin but this was like the battery in my back and i didn't mention this in the intro either but i wrote an extensive uh article about the band surrounding the film all i can say dropped it on the day it was made available the film dropped that is and i dropped the article same day or same weekend i should say and uh when i invited christopher thorne on the pod through dm i included a link to that article and he said he would come on the pod but i haven't heard back from him in quite some time in the meantime i'd been following rogers on facebook saw that his album had come out called it an ep earlier it's an lp self-titled town and stevens so i hit him up direct hey you want to talk about this past present future and he was like sure i'm in i took the reverse approach i did not send him 
the article in advance. Just didn't want to spook him, didn't know if the level of, of passion in the article maybe was off-putting to Christopher, or he didn't want to do the maybe the emotional labor that he thought a conversation with me would require. I don't know. I went with the opposite, and it worked. Roger st- but then, after this awesome conversation you just heard, you know, a week or so later, coincidentally, after he hung with Thorne, at that See Here Now Danny Clinch thing he referenced in Jersey, that festival, he messaged me. He's like, yo, dude, I read the article you wrote about the band and the movie. And he said really nice things. And I was tempted to even just like read it verbatim, but I'm going to keep that to myself. But I didn't send him the article. I don't know that Thorne did, but somebody did after he spoke with me. And he was, he just said the type of things that will burn an eternal light fire in my heart and battery in my back for the rest of the time i want to write about music i can always go to the dms and check out what rogers said about what i wrote about blind melon in 2019 24 years after shannon's passing and and 26 years after i ran around the beaches of margate after dark with steve malik smoking swag listening to this band on like one of those cd boom boxes you know like not unlike the Kruderendorfmeister experience this year, writing my first story about them and having them, you know, share it, celebrate it. Uh, this was even deeper because the the roots are deeper. And Rogers, you know, found it on his own. And you know, he he paid some really nice compliments and affirmations. And I told him, I said, Chris Heath is responsible. Details Magazine, Nico's CD-ROM, reading that, like with the grief after Shannon's passing and not even realizing that I was going to spend the next two and a half decades of my life like soundtracked to this music. Just in the immediate aftermath, 17, 18-year-old me, I mean, I wrote my second ever article for my school newspaper, arts and entertainment section, Lavendus was the name of the part of the Cherry Hill East newspaper, and my second article was a eulogy for Shannon, and and then came Nico, and I read details, and uh, the details article that was in Nico, Chris Heath, and, and it's, it's that amazing, and I told rogers that that specifically lit the fire and he remembered chris and you know said a few nice things about him too and that like was just the ultimate closing of the loop i felt like mission accomplished on all accounts i didn't spook rogers we got to talk some melon we didn't go over the same old same old it was emotional but not overwhelming we parted as friends and he saliently said at the end he said we got to move on and he's right i hope thorn hey christopher if you're out there we still got to do our thing i have tons of other stuff i want to talk about i want to hear about your your journey your perspective your your uh, memories too and that goes for brad or glenn as well you know if those guys ever want to talk glenn's still the drummer Brad's been uh, out of the band for several years now, and, and that's something that hardcores would probably be like, why didn't you ask about the Brad thing? Well, Rogers walked right up to Brad, talking about his carpentry skills, building his house in L.A. Um, if he even, like, dangled something, I might have I might have asked a question relative to it, but no. 
you know, if those guys want us to know why things the way they are, they have ample ways to tell us. And I think one of the ways I like to move through uh, the music scene and life is with respect for that. But Brad, doors open if you ever want to talk. Glenn, man of few words. <laughs> Same goes for you. And you heard what uh, Roger said about like relationships that deteriorate or go awry, but it's always brotherhood and it's always love. And he was saying that about the manager, Chris Jones, but I think that that could be extended to anybody in the Mellon family in the past. That, uh, yeah, that's how I rolled with it. And I hope that it was as satisfying for listeners as it was for me. Um, I've already said so much about what it meant to me, so like we always do about this time the vibe junkie jams um what the fuck do i play right it's like there's so many um tunes and i obviously played a number of snippets of this or that and we're hearing the demo for soup in the background which means i got three minutes to wrap this up um I came all the way back to 96 and the Letters from a Porcupine documentary. And probably my favorite song, or definitely on my metal podium for favorite songs solely from the debut record, is Time, um, which is the last song and always had like a middle section that jams out. Never more so than when Shannon completely becomes unhinged, tripping balls on a head full at Woodstock 94 and starts throwing congas out into the sea of people while he's like wearing barrettes and dog ear dreads and kind of like this dress sort of outfit that belonged to his uh, wife. Anyway, time on Letters from a Porcupine has three sections. So it starts in the right before he dies on the final tour. Then they throw it back to like the wetlands or Irving Plaza in 92. And then they finish at Woodstock, the, the crazy version that I just referenced. So I'm just going to rip that and play that version of time, which is you know like 10-ish minutes. And in there, there's some dialogue strung in when they like shift from the time jam at Irving Plaza 92 to Woodstock 94. So you hear them talk about, you know, how high they and had been drinking and and were bugging out and they're on like a helicopter ride in visually as you descend and then you get the the unraveling of shannon um which was beautiful to watch and also probably kind of scary and, and when i say unraveling he's just like rolling around on the stage writhing around i should say and and it's it's all the things. The version of time kind of encapsul encapsulates the whole journey, and I think that's what they were trying to do with the film. So um, if I played more than one song, I'd have to play like 11 songs. So uh, I'm going to link a playlist in here, but um, I'm going to wrap things up with time from all the different eras. And, and with that, a deep bow of reverence and gratitude for Roger Stevens the late, great Shannon Hoon, all of Blind Mill and all of the listeners. If you made it this far, I love you. And I am so grateful for your uh, attention and for your listening and all that good shit. 
With that, I'll say goodbye, jobless, and we'll see you next time. Where I'm at, where I was, is still relatively the same place. Um, things are a little bit more serious now. See, all those other bands are doing drugs. We're eating gold food bars. stage fright or anything. We went on right after Joe Cocker. And we got out there. Year. Not to mention the, f the fact that this satellite broadcast around the world. You got to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really going to have to pull this off. You know, a zombie panic state, you know. I'm remembering the notes. I'm what they're saying on the news and on the radio about this little get-together we're having here, they're, they're telling me that all you people have really distorted behavior. $135 a ticket, you should be able to distort whatever it is you want to distort.
thousand fed up faces Lots and lots of pretty colors Lots of pretty, pretty, pretty colors Lots of pretty, pretty, pretty colors Pretty, pretty, pretty colors Yeah. 